1: The history of fashion is a production of iheart Radio With over seven billion people in
2: the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dress listeners, the glitz. The glam
1: and the often amusing red carpet antics of Hollywood's biggest night out are just around the corner. That's right. This coming Sunday marks the 94th Academy Awards, which is, of course, affectionately known as the Oscars. And this highly publicized awards ceremony is incredibly important um, to the fashion industry as millions tune in to spot their favorite stars on the red carpet and also the celebrity presenters and winners on stage.
2: And what they are wearing, of course. That is definitely why I tune in, a big part of it anyways. (laughs) And perhaps one of the most frequent questions asked on the red carpet by press interviewing attendees is the query, who are you wearing? Although that's actually drawn critique for many years for being frequently asked to women actors while male actors have historically been asked about their role for their work, not their fashion choices. Although I will say I feel like that's kind of changing a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been a whole discussion about it and 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 that has shifted a bit. So, but just the very fact that we're even talking about this cast, it, it kind of speaks volumes in terms of the gendering of fashion as feminine and quote unquote frivolous in eras past. But I'm gonna have to agree with today's guest, Esther Zuckerman, when she writes that, quote, what a woman chooses to put on her body for arguably the highest profile event of the year can be a statement of intent an acceptance of status in the pantheon of celebrity, or a rebuke of the role that she's been assigned. Her pick carries a lot of weight.
2: And this week, Esther joins us for a two-part deep dive into the history of some of the most iconic looks women have worn at the Oscars, which she details so beautifully in her book, Beyond the Best Dress, a cultural history of the most glamorous, radical, and scandalous Oscar fashion. Esther, welcome to the show.
1: Esther, thank you so much for joining us to speak about your very recently released book, Beyond the Best Dressed. Thank
0: you so much for having me, April. I'm so excited to chat with you.
1: Yeah, us too. So um, just a little bit about the book. In the book, you have selected more than 20 individual looks that were worn to the Oscars over the course of its now 90-plus year history. I can't even believe that it's been that long, but it has. And as you note in the subtitle of your book, some were selected for their glamour, but others were selected for their political or scandalous nature. And I think we're going to dish a little bit about a few of the looks from each of these categories. But before we do, I'm kind of hoping that we might speak a bit about the early history of the Oscars, because I'm guessing that a lot of people don't really know so much about this. When was the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences first established? By whom?
0: And why? So it was established in the late 1920s, the first ceremony took place in 1929, and it was established by Louis B. Mayer, um, the sort of the famous Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer controversial head of home show. And the really interesting history of the Oscars, which I feel like gets into a lot of some of the political nature of the Oscars is that essentially the academy was established as like a union busting measure by the Louis B. Mayer within the sort of different crafts of Hollywood at the time. There were sort of rumblings about forming unions, advocating for rights, and the sort of idea behind the Oscars and the academy was that like If we give people awards, maybe they won't ask for um, more rights and protections, um, which is sort of crazy to think about. And obviously over the years, it has sort of since transformed. It didn't work. Obviously the unions, the Hollywood unions were founded. And now, interestingly enough, like our sort of participate in the award cycle that leads to the Oscars where you have the, you know, the Directors Guild Awards, the SAG Awards, all these sort of stops are actually union award shows, but it's also sort of interesting how that history of the Oscars has been sort of clouded a little bit for the glamour and the glitz. And it it did work to a certain degree in the sense that like, obviously the unions were founded, but the Oscars themselves took on this life of their own, which can sort of, I guess, obscure some of like the true goings on in Hollywood.
1: Right, right, right. It's, it, it's kind of like a PR mechanism, I would,
0: I would argue. Yeah, with. of course. Exactly. <laughs> like,
1: like, look over here. Don't look over here. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking about this as I was preparing to talk to you, and I have no idea why the award is actually called an Oscar. What is the reason behind that?
0: So, I mean, the the legend goes that Margaret Herrick, who the Academy Library is named after her, she was a librarian for the Academy, and the sort of joke that she joked that the statue looks like her Uncle Oscar, um, and then that's how it sort of got the name over the years. That's sort of what the, how the legend goes. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's fascinating. Is there like a specific role within the Academy itself that the Oscars play or, or were they kind of like co-founded at the same time for reasons which you already touched on?
0: Yeah, they're, they're co-founded at the same time. Like the Academy and the Oscars are like one in the same, really. It was like founded as an awards mechanism. Mm-hmm.
1: So I want to know a little bit more about the very first ceremony. My understanding is that it's it was very different than the Oscars as we know them to be today.
0: Yeah, I mean, the very first ceremony, the awards were pretty quick. It was a dinner and dancing evening. Um, it was not the sort of show that it now is. Um, a lot of the show qualities um, came once, you know, TV and radio were introduced, um, and they were being broadcast, but it's really, I mean, that's another, gets sort of like another interesting thing about the Oscars. And one of the things I wanted to touch on the book is that like, it's an industry event. That's what sort of, I mean, you look at today with like all of the controversy over this year's Oscar ceremony, where clearly there is a desire to Juice viewership ABC, which has broadcast rights to Oscars, is pretty nervous that ratings have been down. So there's talk of like moving categories off that categories are going to be presented this year before this like the actual broadcast begins and then edited later, which a lot of the members of the academy in those areas are really frustrated by. And the weird thing about it is like, yeah, it was started as an industry event, an insider event, but it's sort of taken on this life of its own where it's supposed to be sort of a global celebration or at least U.S. sort of based celebration sort of on the scale of like the Super Bowl where people will turn in, but for arts and culture. So that's what sort of, you know, it started as a small thing, like people have a dinner and dance and party, you know. Yeah. And you know what?
1: There's actually a parallel within the fashion system. I mean, the Oscars and fashion are, are completely intertwined once we probably get to year two. And I think we're going to get that in a second. But a lot of people don't realize that it wasn't until like the 90s that fashion shows became something that was more than an industry event. Like in the 1950s, you were an editor, you were a client, you were a like a fashion illustrator, you are part of the industry if you were going to be invited to a fashion show. And it's kind of, it's kind of the same thing.
0: Totally. Totally.
1: So let's talk a little bit about what happened in terms of Oscar fashion when we transitioned from the first year to the second year in terms of the images that we do have.
0: Yeah. So I would have loved to start with the very beginning, but the image we do have of Janet Painter, who went for Best Actress um, in that very first year, is sort of, you know, her look is very mild. It's almost like a sailor type outfit. And it, it, it's, it seems the image that we have, which is her sort of accepting the Trophy and a promotional image is very casual. In the second year, Mary Pickford won for a film called Coquette. And she was a silent movie star who, this was her first speaking role. The image that we do have of her is this very glamorous. Blue dress. I'm not sure if it was actually beaded, but it has a sort of an embroidery on it. And she's wearing pearls. She's sort of standing by the Oscar, looking very, you know, what we know and expect of an Oscar outfit, basically. We, we don't know. It might have been a long, long dress. What we do know is that Mary Pickford was influential in starting the academy. She was married to Douglas Fairbanks they were also instrumental in founding the United Artists, which is still a major motion picture company. And one of the interesting things about her that I sort of wanted to fold in is that not only was she wearing this very beautiful, very glamorous, very sort of traditionally quote-unquote Oscar-y outfit, she also sort of established the idea of like Oscar campaigning, which I I think is so entwined with this. At that point, the awards were not like, it wasn't the whole guild. The awards were voted on um, by a small team of members. She invited them all over for tea. She wanted to win this. She saw it as the sort of status item that it now is. The movie actually had gotten like pretty bad reviews her, so in her performance. So it's really fascinating. And she reportedly shipped over, you know, had a shipment of dresses is brought over from European co-chair houses. The idea that one of them might have been her Oscar dress, we don't like know for sure, but she definitely did import a lot of outfits. So (laughs) she knew that she wanted to be
1: dressed up for the occasion. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because if you look at Janet Gaynor's outfit, it's almost like high-end quote-unquote sportswear, right? She's wearing socks with these little flat, Like, I don't want to say sneakers, but they were sports shoes of that era, right? It was a very casual look. And then all of a sudden, Mary Pickford swoops in and basically creates the template for what we think of as a Hollywood actress going to the Oscars, which is fascinating.
0: Yeah, completely.
1: So fast forward a few years. Let's move 10 years into the future. And in 1940, Hattie McDaniel became the first Black recipient of an Academy Award. She won for Best Supporting Actress. So I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about why the role that she won for was even somewhat controversial in that time and a little bit later and continues to be, and then also what she did decide to wear to the awards.
0: So, Hedy McDaniel won for playing Mammy in Gone with the Wind, which, as I'm sure some of your listeners know, is Still one of the most uh controversial movies of all time. Recently during the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, it was actually removed from HBO Max. And in sort of an introduction by Turner Classic movies host, um, Jacqueline Stewart was added to sort of contextualize it. Um, but I think the interesting thing that sometimes is forgotten as we're discussing how controversial Gone with the Wind is now, is that it was always controversial when it was announced that Margaret Mitchell's book was going to be adapted. The NAACP was angry about that. And Hattie McDaniel occupied a really interesting place in the sort of Hollywood ecosystem in the sense that she did play a lot of slave roles a lot of roles that were seen as meaning to black to black actors and within the black community she was challenged for that at the time there's a fascinating quote from a black journalist who wrote that her the role um, of mammy means about $2,000 for Miss McDaniel in individual advancement and nothing in rich advancement. So by the time the film came out, there was already this discussion that we think of as sort of like a modern discussion, but it wasn't. It wasn't. It was happening then. But McDaniel is a fascinating person who advocated for herself to be nominated. She advocated for David O. Selznick. The studio had to run the campaign for her so she could win. She beat out her co-star, Olivia de Havilland, and she gave a speech that was possibly said to be been written by the studio. We don't really know, um, but that turned it into the moment that we now see it as, which I think is also a really interesting thing in the sense that it is, there's an element of McDaniel's presence, the ceremony that is sort of white Hollywood patting itself on the back. It was a, the awards that beer we were held at the coconut grove, which was a segregated club. She was not allowed to sit with her co-stars. And then her win was praised and celebrated by all these people who were still excluding her. In terms of what she wore, we don't really know a lot about the provenance of her outfit. Um, It was a aquamarine dress with a little coat, but she wore these gardenias um, on her shoulder and in her hair. And I thought it was really interesting that she referenced gardenias a lot. She said that she wanted to be buried with gardenias and It's also another thing that I think is so interesting is that when Monique won um, for her role in Precious, she wore Gardenias in her hair as a tribute. Um, So Gardenias have taken on, you know, at the Oscars, this moment, this sort of homage to McDaniel and her place in the world.
1: Yep. Fashion history is always present, friends. It's it's right here with us all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about Six Years Later, which happened in 1946 because Joan Crawford's win was rather the complete sartorial opposite of Hattie's very much put together beautiful Aquamanor ensemble. It had like some beading on it and she had all flowers on her shoulder and in her hair. I mean, she was done up. Yeah. What did Crawford wear and what were the circumstances surrounding her win that year?
0: So Joan Crawford, sort of notorious in history for being a a diva, maybe is the right word. Um, She's sort of notorious for her attitude and her stridentness. And she did not go to the ceremony that year. She was maybe sick. She was maybe didn't think she was going to win and didn't want to lose. In her autobiography, she writes that she was shaking with chills and a fever. Um, she was dressed to go, but, you know, she was told, no way. The legend has it that maybe it was a little bit more of a decision that she didn't want to lose because it was predicted that Ingrid Bergman was going to win. And now um, Joan Coffer was nominated for Mildred Pears, which is a wonderful, wonderful noir film. And she was possibly sick, but not sick enough that she didn't have, you know, eventually end up getting dressed in this peignoir noir with a full face of makeup. And hair. And hair. And posed with her trophy in bed. <laughs> what, like a photographer's already there, friends. Let's just say that. Yes. <laughs> um... The nightgown was designed by the in-house costume designer for MGM. That's like a lot of early Oscar outfits sort of had this relationship with the studios where the costume designers for the studios were also dressing stars for the ceremonies. Um, Not entirely. That wasn't like entirely true, but it was sort of that was what fashion looked like a little bit more, you know, when she gave this amazing sound bite that she voted for Ingrid Bergman herself, you know, very sort of modest and humble. But, you know, the images we have for her, she is looking totally glamorous, totally done up from her sick bed, holding her Oscar, um, which I just think is wonderful.
1: I know. It's so John Crawford, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> through and through all the way. And speaking of perhaps not a totally typical red carpet look, let's talk about Miyoshi Yumiki's uh, look that she wore to the Oscars in the 1950s. She won in 1958 for Best Supporting Actress. So what did she wear? And more to the point, really, what was the American press's response to her choice?
0: So Miyoshi Maki, who not many people know of these days, was the first person of Asian descent to win an Oscar, which is remarkable. And then it took a very long time after that for anyone to follow. She wore a kimono. Um, she's Japanese. She wore a kimono to the ceremony. She was nominated for the film Sayonara, which I think is slightly forgotten to lost to history for good reason. It's a pretty dated look at GIs in Japan. But, you know, I think what was interesting was I was obviously really in the book trying to look for reactions to outfits. And I think, you know, there was, is sort of a similar but different like way that it was a sort of celebratory condescension. Luella Parsons wrote that she was like a quote unquote cute thing in her native costume. Whereas obviously if you read anything else about Miyoshi Meki, she wasn't sort of this meek
1: stereotype. She had a big personality and she wasn't afraid to speak her mind.
0: (laughs) Yeah. She was a jazz singer who was sort of discovered. She was very ambitious at the time. And so it's sort of, it's, It is interesting to look that, you know, anything sort of deemed foreign at the time was sort of celebrated, but she wasn't embraced. It was seen, it was other
1: in the press. Yeah, for sure. And and, and we keep seeing this again and again, kind of like cycle through any outside of, you know, the expectation that a white actress is going to win. Yeah. Right. And it continues on for a very long time.
0: I also think it's not even, you know, in terms of winning, but also, you know, you sort of look at, um, which I talk about later in the book, the controversy around Zendaya appearing at the Oscars in 2015, where she wore her hair in locks, um, and Juliana Rancic of Fashion Police said that she smells of patchouli oil or weed, sort of at the same time taking this look that is a traditionally Black hairstyle and degrading it and othering it in the context of the Oscars that, like, oh, well, you're supposed to dress for the Oscars in, like, a certain way, and that, like, quote-unquote certain way is your white Hollywood glamour. Yep.
1: I mean, she had to pedal back on that hard in 2015. Can you even imagine now if she had said that in 2022? Not Not that there's a reason why it was worse then than it is now. It's just, like, things have changed a little bit.
0: Yeah. Oh, 100%. And I mean, it sort of, it was a moment that I think was really interesting that also Zendaya was really, you know, just coming off of her Disney Channel show. She hadn't been in Spider-Man yet. Like, obviously, Euphoria was a long way off from starting. She was not the star that she now is, but her response to it, which was amazing Um, and so wonderful like such an incredible sort of mic drop moment basically for her really I think established her too as the sort
1: of powerhouse star that she now is mm-hmm. fashion icon literally yes <laughs> yeah. newly minted by the CFDA Cass as you know we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year mm-hmm. so you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone
2: You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris,
1: and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant
2: decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
1: So let's talk about other outspoken actresses. Of course, Rita Moreno, who won Best Supporting Actress in 1962. You write in the book that at the time she was considered, quote, Hollywood's most outspoken actress. So, what was it that she was so vocal about at that time? Can you tell us a little bit about what she wore in 1962? And I, I just love this so much, how the, what she wore in 1962
0: got a reboot in 2018. Uh, so the most amazing thing is obviously Rita Moreno, who is uh, a legend um, through and through, wore the same dress, a modified version of the same dress that she was wearing when she won in 1962, back when she was presenting in 2018. It has been slightly amended. It's. It, They sort of, they made it uh, sleeveless as opposed to a bateau top. She added some gloves. Um, Obviously her hairstyle had changed, but incredible. Like incredible that anyone could do that. And still fit um, in it. She's amazing. Yeah. It's because she's in that dancer's body. Yeah. And also that it had been preserved so well. Um, It's this amazing dress that she actually, you know, she got it in the Philippines after she made West Side Story. She was in this B-movie. Cry of battle. She really sort of, you know, and which gets into one of the reasons that she was called um, in the press at the time, Hollywood's most outspoken actress. This is that both then and now, Rita Moreno was speaking out about the lack of roles for Latinx actresses in Hollywood and how she was often sort of pigeonholed as, or this sort of generally quote-unquote like foreigner. Um, they, they didn't have any roles that were like fully fledged. Latina's character. She played a lot of different ethnicities. And that if she was playing um, a Latina's woman, she was sort of, it was the quote-unquote spitfire. It was really reduced to a certain thing. And Anita in West Side Story, which Ariana DeVos is up for playing the same role this year, and is probably going to win, was more developed than that. And she sort of expected that this moment, that this Oscars moment for her that she had would lead to doors opening. And it really, like, the shocking thing is it really did. not She struggled in the years following. And it wasn't until later in her career that she sort of regained the status that she now has.
1: Yeah, well, and and you know what she did? She went in there and kicked those doors open herself because I referenced that she won an EGOT. For any of our listeners who might not know what that is, it's not even a trinity. What do you call a four times thing? So yeah, there, sure. there are very, very few people in this world who have won an Emmy a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony Award. So when we say EGOT, she won all of them. And so, you know, she did it herself. She kicked those doors down and broke that glass ceiling. All right, we're still on the theme of politics in terms of like our Oscar fashions at this time. So also somebody not afraid to shy away from the political implications of what to wear to the Oscars is Jane Fonda. She won in 1972. So what did she wear and how did her choice fit into her very vocal activism at the time?
0: So Jane Fonda, when she won for Clue, which you haven't seen, this, an amazing movie directed by Alan J. Papala. It's just...
1: I saw it as a kid and it kind of like, I was like, maybe I was too young to see that movie when I saw it.
0: Yeah, you're probably too young to see it when you saw it. Um, (laughs) She wore this Yves Saint Laurent suit that she had in her closet, Um, a very stark Yves Saint Laurent suit with a high, you know, sort of quote unquote Maoist collar. And one of the reasons she chose it was, I mean, this wasn't her first Oscar nomination, but it was really in the height of her anti-Vietnam War activism. And she sort of, she knew that she was coming to the Oscars that year with a lot of eyes on her. Basically, there was a headline that I found um, at the time that it was, you know, the fact that she'd even been nominated was proof that the Academy was not, quote, vindictive because she had, you know, because she had been so outspoken and she had been sort of starting to see seen as like a riot in the industry for her activism. And, you know, she wanted to say a lot without saying much at all. So she wore the suit, which is a gorgeous suit, by the way, like an absolutely stunning suit. Also something that she just happened to have, which like incredible, but that was also very stark. It's black, it's not, she wasn't wearing sort of a, you know, sparkly dress the way we expected to. Um, And she got up there, she actually asked her father, Henry Fonda, for advice on what to say. She didn't know what she wanted to give a big speech sort of addressing her activism or sort of go a different direction and what she actually saying was you know there's a lot to say but I'm not going to say it right now um which I think spoke speaks volumes which is sort of the same thing that she did with her outfit she is saying a lot without saying much at all yeah
1: and, and extremely covered up I mean literally mm-hmm. from neck to wrist yeah. so yeah you know, at this point in the 70s, we're accustomed to seeing a bit of skin on the female actors that are like nominated.
0: And Jane Fonda is also known for, you know, Barbarella. Yeah, Barbarella. <laughs> she she was famous as a glamorous sex symbol. So, you know, and her hair is also in that sort of mullet, which was also on her mudshot, shot, which her her very famous, very iconic mugshot. So
1: mm-hmm. I did go back a tad and I I read like when I was like, oh, I watched this when I was a kid. I think it kind of messed with my head. So I went back and I watched a few scenes and I was like, yes, I have seen this. Yes, it did mess with your head. And yes, you still want her hair. So yeah, Yeah. there might be a fashion mullet in my future. Just saying.
0: (laughs) Um, I cannot. I have way too curly hair to pull it off. I would love to, but I can't.
1: All right, so let's fast forward to the next year, 1973. Diana Ross, one of my all-time favorite fashion icons, Mahogany. Please, listeners, if you have not watched Mahogany, watch it. She plays a fashion designer. It's, like, delicious, like, 70s fashion. But Diana Ross wore not one but two looks to the Oscars. So, what did she wear? And Esther, why did she perform a costume
0: change? So— I was really fascinated by this because I wanted to write about the image best associated. She was nominated for playing Billy Holiday in Lady Saints and Blues. Um, and the image best associated with her at the time is this sort of this very 70s, as we said, a satin silver suit designed by the legendary, I keep saying legendary, but it's true, designed by Bob Mackie, who I'm sure we'll talk about in the context of Cher, but then as I was looking, I noticed that she actually changed for the ceremony, and there aren't a lot of photos of her other outfit, there's not really a record of it, and the truth of the matter is, is she believed she was going to win. She didn't. She lost to Liza Minnelli uh, in Cabaret, who was famously wearing Halston, um, of course. course. (laughs) But I actually, I spoke to Bob Mackie for the book, who was so gracious with his time. And he describes her other outfit that we don't really know as He said it had a wonderful little white collar on it. Um, It was very demure. It had rose spreads embroidered here and there in the dress. Um, She looked beautiful. He said, I mean, Diana looked great in everything, which Mm -hmm. obviously. But it was a really interesting moment as well because Barry Gordney produced Ladies in Blues*, who was the founder of Motown, was very convinced that Diana was going to win. Ran a huge Oscar campaign at a time when... Oscar campaigns weren't what they were now. Um, and it sort of, from the telling, it sort of backfired a little. It was seen as desperate. It was seen as sort of, you know, also this music interloper coming in to
1: Hollywood. Which now is the norm. <laughs>
0: which now is the norm. It's also, like, I mean, it was a very, like, difficult year. I mean, obviously, like Mellie's performance in Cabaret is sort of inarguable. And she was up against Cecily Tyson. It was actually the first year until last year, I believe, that um, two Black women were nominated at the same time in Best Actress, which is remarkable. Um, And I also write about Cecily Tyson in the book. But it is fascinating that this one sort of outfit is almost essentially lost to history, because if she had gotten, she had won and gotten up on stage wearing it. Like we would have all known what she was wearing. And instead we have this other, of uh, her like the image we have of her is the survival image, which is this sort of this, which is very cool. This very cool satin tucks, but it's not the other, it's not what we, what we think of.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, it's straight up menswear essentially. Yeah. A little a, yeah. little, a little twist on it. And I think like, you know, she's wearing a satin suit with a vest and a tie and a white shirt with a collar. She's flirting with that, like, masculine edge, which was super fashionable at the time. But yet, at the same time, she didn't feel like, or maybe her advisors didn't feel like, she should get up on stage wearing that. You know, she switched into a very glamorous black gown with a black fur, full Hollywood glam. So
0: Yeah, she, she had, I mean, I think it's also interesting, you know, I don't really talk about this in the book, but like this idea of like the winner's outfit, like what, what do you know when you like sort of know that you're probably favored to win? And I think that was an outfit that was like, a, I'm going to win in this outfit type of look that didn't
1: end up being the case. Yeah. Well, also it brings the question of what do the people who don't think that they're going to win end up wearing? you know, like, I mean, maybe that is a different podcast for a different day, but but I think that's a whole other conversation. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. Very fascinating.
2: <laughs> Esther, thank you for all of your insights on Oscar style up to the 1960s. So much has been covered, April, and yet we are only halfway into our discussion of some of the most provocative looks worn to the Academy Awards. We'll pick back up with Esther on that point this coming Thursday in part two. We sure will. And that does it for us today, Dress listeners. May you
1: consider where glam resides in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Or you can DM us on Instagram, which is, of course, while we post images to accompany each week's episodes at dressed underscore podcast.
2: Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each and every week. We will catch back up with you in part two of Beyond the Best Dressed on Thursday. (music) Dress: the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.